In the red corner, defending champion Rode Knox. In the blue corner, Josef Skov... Unpronounceable, with Big Mac refereeing to keep this fight in order. Gentlemen, start your engines on Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER. And Herds, we're back. <gasps> we're back. Not that we ever really left, but we've just come back from a couple of weeks of live music shows yeah. for Supporter Drive here on 2SER. Thank you so much for all of your support and tuning in while we did that. Yeah, maybe you go back and support. Anyway, you can support right now if you'd like to. 2SER.com. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're here with Sins for Father Knox. Sins for Father Knox. By Yosef. By Yosef. Yosef Skvoreski. <laughs> so, Herds has been for the past mm-hmm. month struggling to pronounce this name. I don't want to pronounce it. It's a curse. It's it's like, it's a word that you use to like summon demons. <laughs> Czechoslovakian demons, to be specific. Skvoreski. 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 That's the one. It's close. It's very close. Look, I like Russian names. Czech, not so much. So, Herds, this week our novel is Sins for Father Knox by Joseph Skvoreski. Mm-hmm. And this is a novel whose name might ring a bell for those of you that have been with us since the beginning. Oh, yes. Mr. Mr. Knox himself. The, yeah. the father. The father who has bestowed upon us ten rules that we will never break on pain of death. Yeah, we won't go over the rules explicitly in this episode because it's just reading a list and that's boring. That's fine. There's uh, The very second episode of the podcast is us breaking them down mm-hmm. and you should definitely check that out if you're interested in solving this along with us. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. what you need to know about Ronald Knox is that he was a Catholic priest who was a hefty contributor to the modern Catholic canon through translations and more of his work. So his 10 rules for detective fiction, which this book seeks in every chapter to break one and only one of those rules. Yes. Um, Basically, his Ten Commandments were written as a joke, but kind of inadvertently became the rules of the detection club. I mean, they're good rules. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are pretty good rules. And they're very tongue in cheek. We've spoken with several people about them on the show across multiple episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the really exciting thing about this book is that it, one at a time, is going to ask us which sin do we commit against yes. Father Knox's Decalogue. Yep. And, oh, it's it's Christmas for me, Herds. It's Christmas. <laughs> So the stories we'll be covering today is an intimate business, a mistake in Hitsungais, I I think. Not really sure on how to pronounce that one. Hitsung C or something? I think that's right. Hitsung C, yeah. Hitsung C, uh, that sounds and, right. And the man Eve didn't know from Adam. Yeah. Uh, now, our main characters across this series is Lieutenant Borovka and Eve Adams, which is what that last title was a play on. Yep. Um, Lieutenant Borovka, we'll focus on now, we'll talk about Eve coming up a bit later, down this discussion, uh, Lieutenant Borovka was kind of the main detective that Yosef uh, had over his four-book series about Borovka, uh, which included the mournful demeanor of Lieutenant Borovka, Sins for Father Knox, the mm-hmm. end of Lieutenant Borovka, and the return of Lieutenant Borovka. <gasps> the return! Playing into that, that very playing into a very classic trope that we won't spoil because people might not have read it, but it's a very classic trope. Point is, we're doing the Sins for Father Knox, we're covering the intro and the first three stories of the novel, and the way we're going to kind of do it today is that Flex has not read the answers. Yes. He, is, so. he has read the intros, the, the main body of the story for each of those three stories. And then we're going to cover that in the first 10 minutes. We're going to take, we're going to have a pre-record interview that goes for another 10 minutes. And then, and then we're going to come back with the, the solutions. Yes. That. 
who gets points and who doesn't. The kind of tone of this uh, this collection is a little bit different to what we've had recently, particularly compared to the tales from from Two Pockets. Uh, we have like nightclubs and strippers and like lots of sex. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's extraordinarily gritty. Lots of booty. It's really strange because you know, obviously, this is the next step in our world tour of murder mystery after Carol Chapek who wrote a lot about what it was like for Czechoslovakia to be occupied by Soviet control Mm -hmm. and, you know, what it was like for him to then move to America. And a lot of those stories deal with that in a very lighthearted way that deconstructs modes of the mystery genre. The uh, the second story in particular is quite a complicated one. It it definitely reads more like a crime drama uh, given the characters that that we're, we're situated with. I think the other thing that's worth noting is that Joseph was writing in kind of early to late feminist periods. Mm. Um, He died in 2012, so he's actually the most recent author that we've covered on the show so far. You know, a lot of it is both empowering and critical of, you know, the gender roles of the crime boss and the stripper. And it doesn't really draw any conclusions on those, but it puts those very upfront in a confronting way that forces you to think about it. Yeah, so we've spoken a bit now about uh, the second tale here. Let's jump back to the first for a moment, An Intimate Business, where we start with a woman already arrested. Yes. We don't know her name. We don't know who's in the scene. We just know that she's arrested and Lieutenant Borovka is half-heartedly trying to get her out while solemnly reflecting on his own family life. Yeah, it's it's a really weird blend of mm. these two characters and their kind of personal lives getting intertangled. I think that it it tackles everything in the first story so you know what you're getting yourself into. It tackles a little bit of the sex, it tackles a little bit of the crime, it tackles a little bit of the rules, all in very bite-sized chunks that are very plain to see. I'm not sure if it gets more vague because I haven't read all of them, but my expectation is is that this is basically a brief. Yeah, we'll see. I, I definitely remember when I first read it, it is probably the the most challenging story to pin down the, the sin that's being broken, which mm. we'll, we'll talk about later, simply because you're not quite sure what you're getting in for. Yeah, and then that's a very strange contrast with our third story, the, the man <laughs> that Eve didn't know from Adam, which is like two it, cute babes going on a road such trip. A weird look. <laughs> It is definitely the weirdest out of the first three stories because you're absolutely right. These stories have like this weird fixation on sex in the female form, which, you know, shout out to my boy Skrovich, whatever his name was. <laughs> That's Skrezky. the worst one you've tried so far. <laughs> but like it starts off with these two ladies just hanging out on the side of the road and they're like, there's been a, there's been a murder and, a, and it's, it's a, there's sex stuff involved. And they're like, what is happening? Like, the subject matter that we are actually tackling is horrifying. But, like, Laura just fakes fainting into the policeman's arms, and then it's just this, like, oh, it's a murder. Oh, we got to figure out which which playboy is the bad one. It's ridiculous, tonally. I do not understand yeah. how this story even exists. I don't mind the story <laughs> on its own, but compared to the previous two, I just oh got an God. epic sense of whiplash. It is totally completely different, and it is insane. Uh, all right, Herds, yeah? I've got to pose you these solutions for these pause boxes. It's true. Let's go. So, Lay them on me. I reckon that for the first story, we're breaking rule one. I reckon we're just breaking rule one because it's the first story. It wants to be easy. It wants to set the tone for it. Of course, rule one is that the culprit must be introduced in the early part of the story. And I think that it's the uh, the doctor's wife who is the culprit. Okay. Uh, because there he supposedly has a daughter, even though he's infertile. Okay. And I think that's obviously the motive there. 
For the second story, I think that we're breaking rule three, uh, which is to say that you can only have one secret passage. Oh, is a secret passage involved? This is the one that I think I'm most likely to get wrong mm-hmm. because he could have just thrown the the locked room in there like completely, you know, just as a red herring. But it doesn't seem like that to me. Um, and the third story, Flex. And of course, the third story, the man Eve didn't know from Adam. I reckon that the line that uh, she has a little spark is meant to be pointing us at the car. I reckon that that's breaking rule number eight because the spark is the clue that we haven't been lighted on. Okay. Which is okay. what rule eight covers. Sure, um, sure. And who, who do you think the murder is, Flex? Well, I, it says that I shouldn't be able to figure that out, so I'm not going to. You know to. what? That's all right. Because now, I was I, told that I have to solve yeah. the boxes, and I, that's I what I'm going to I should be very clear. The rules for points for this round of of, of murder mysteries uh-huh. is if you can Stop. solve- Stop. Hold on, Hertz. Let's just be clear here. What? I gave you a stack of bonus look, points, I, and look, then covered a story- It's okay. That I couldn't get any points on, so- You say that like, I didn't do the, we didn't do the reverse when we did the, the kennel murder case, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. The point is that I am in control right now, and uh-huh, you will uh-huh. not take me off my high horse. Okay. So, the plan is, Flex, yes. that each of these three, you know, three weeks that we yes. can through stories- you will have the opportunity to attempt to answer all of the questions in the little stop box. Uh-huh. If you can answer all of the questions from that week, so the, the three or four stories that we cover in that week, you get one point. Okay. So there is the potential for three total points from this novel. I forgot to mention. What? The creepy old man is the culprit in the second story. Damn it. <laughs> I mean, who knows? <laughs> it could be anyone. <laughs> it could be even me. I can't be missing out on points that easily. Damn it. This is Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. Right now, we're going to our guest, and then we'll be back with some solutions. This is Flex and Herds bringing you Death of the Reader. Oh, it's just Flex because Herds has found himself sick as I'm recording this. We're bringing you your Murder Mystery World Tour here on Death of the Reader. Today, we're chatting with Professor John Scott from the Queensland University of Technology, as well as the co-editor of the International Journal for Crime, Justice, and Social Democracy. John, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So in your online journal, part of your task is kind of disseminating a huge amount of information that everyone can be informed on what's going on in social democracy and crime. What's what's that process like for you? What does that involve? Yeah, look, uh, one, one of the reasons why we went online and why we decided to go along with the journal is because of a lot of academic publishing is that it's very restricted. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, there's a paywall, there's a, there's a barrier where uh, it's actually hard to disseminate information, um, you know, regarding what we do, regarding what we research, regarding what we study. And so what, what we want to do with that journal is make uh, criminology more accessible. Um, and, and, and so far it's been quite successful. We've only been running the journal for five years and... Uh, uh, the readership's been huge. I think we've had, you know, about, well, hundreds of thousands of downloads. And that sort of thing is becoming more common in academia. There's also an issue, too, where you've got the global north and the global south. And, you know, a lot of uh, you know, universities uh, in the global south just don't have that access to that sort of knowledge, those, those academic journals. So there's a real sort of knowledge divide, I think. Um, and uh, in that knowledge divide comes at a cost. So I guess one of the things we're trying to do there with the journal is um, break down those sorts of barriers. Um, particularly around knowledge of you can't have justice uh, or global justice until you have, um, I guess, you know, justice around um, knowledge and that access to knowledge as well. Do you think that there is a value in having a democratised justice system like that where a lot of law is bound on precedent of things that have come before it? 
And if yeah. we're making that globally accessible, do you think that pulling towards a global standard on law is something that's worthwhile pursuing? Yeah, well, look, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that people pursue for quite a while. And I know it's, sort of, it's you know, the UN side has sort of set standards that are, that are, that are more global um, um, in, in their reach and so on. And yeah, look, it's, it's certainly something worth, worth pursuing. I guess, you know, in its purest form, you know, we're talking about human rights and that, you know, where you've got you know, these global conventions that, you know, hopefully people if they adhere to those, that, um, that, that's a very good thing. Um, I mean, of course, what we do in the journal is much more modest, but, um, you know, it's just making those, those uh, you know, uh, that information, those facts, uh, that research a little bit more accessible. But, I mean, one of the things that we've done with that, I mean, we've got a wonderful, um, you know, uh, international authorship on, on that journal, you know, from a range of places, and, um, and we're diversifying the knowledge. I mean, so much knowledge comes from the, um, you know, sort of the Anglosphere, and, you uh, and if you look at publishing and, uh, and you know, knowledge production around the world, um, you know, probably 80% of knowledge in criminology and a lot of other disciplines, um, you know, comes from that Anglosphere. So I think, you know, it's uh, very important to break that down. And uh, and we can do that, you know, with, with the law as well. So, yeah, it's, 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 it'd, be, it'd be good if we could uh, make things more accessible. Do you think that that's one of the largest criminal justice problems around the world? And what other challenges does the criminal justice system face around the world? As, as an academic, you know, making knowledge more accessible is a huge challenge, and um, and that's that's a problem, you know, right across, you know, it's a problem for universities, it's a problem for academics more generally. In terms of criminal justice challenges, I think, uh, you know, recently we've seen, you know, a number of issues emerging, you know, that do have global dimensions. Um, you know, certainly around violence, male violence, um, that's that's a big one that has global dimensions. Um, so we know that you know whatever society that you go to, whatever country that you, you go to, um, a lot of acts of interpersonal violence um, do involve men, and we know that sort of comes back down to masculinity. Uh, that's that's something that you know has more you know universal dimension, um, and it's something that's been ignored in the past. So you know if I picked up a you know te- criminology textbook from the uh, 1960s, even 1970s and 80s. Uh, you, you wouldn't read about something like domestic violence, whereas that's becoming a little bit more prominent now. So we're aware of those, those sorts of challenges. You know, it's, it's a bit like the, uh, you know, the sort of shifts that we've seen in, in even in the detective genre, where um, we've become more diverse, more open, uh, to, particularly to those structural inequalities. You know, that we're we're more cognizant of at the moment. Yeah, I remember we've spoken with uh, a lot of people involved with the detective genre in our time on the show, and a lot of them have spoken about how crime and the criminal justice system has changed over the years. For example, Simon Brett, a British author, told us that a lot of detective fiction changed after the Second World War because people no longer had a taste for the death penalty. And then when, oh, we, yeah. Yeah, when we look at books like uh, Josef Skreski's Sins for Father Knox, there's a lot of you know lecherous old things, but we never really get a resolution because sometimes a resolution and punishment isn't going to satisfy everyone. So it's maybe a bit more positive to keep it open-ended. Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, I, I think that what we used to see um, <clears throat> would be, you know, the presentation, you know, particularly in, in in the early stages of the genre, probably up until the Second World War, was that the, you know complex social problems could be solved by the detective. So the detective would go out and uh, you know resolve these very complex, um, you know, murders, crimes, you know, which was sort of a metaphor for you know the complexities of society in the industrial age. Um, but in the post-war period, those problems, you know, became less easy to solve. And there was some acknowledgement of um, that in, in the detective genre, and it's interesting because if you look um, at crime in the post-war period, uh, particularly after the Second World War, you had rising crime rates uh, across the Western world, and you know there was there was this really co- real confidence before the war um, and from the 19th century that 
you know, just using scientific rationality that you could solve crime, you know, you could solve all the problems of the world, you know, it'd be like sort of, you know, public health and other things, you know, you could get rid of disease, you could get rid of crime as well. And I think the detective in, in many ways uh, was a metaphor for that sort of that confidence, uh, mm. that optimism that we could solve these problems. And, um, you know, what we see in the post-war period is that uh, a decline in that confidence, particularly as we started to measure crime, we saw those crime rates rising. Uh, in the Western world right up until the 70s. So by the time we get to the 1970s, there's a lot of criminologists are saying they, there was a phrase, nothing works, because, um, you know, there was there was a less confidence that the state could actually solve crime within its borders. So, you know, prisons were overflowing. Um, we weren't rehabilitating people when we sent them to prisons. I mean, the, the idea that the prison would be somewhere where you could reform people, you know, nobody believed that anymore. The idea that um, police could go out and uh, act ethically and uh, resolve criminal justice issues, nobody believed that anymore. So um, I, I guess the, the tasks for us in the 21st century are much more modest um, in, in comparison. And, um, you know, I guess we are a little bit more cynical now. Um, and, and that cynicism is actually reflected in detective fiction. So it's, uh, yeah. I, I think you, you see that, that cynicism. Um, and, and, and the cynicism does emerge, particularly with regards to um, film noir um, in the 1950s and 1960s. So, and, and, you know, then that's got all sorts of dimensions, you know, around gender, as you would know, and, and all sorts of things. But the, um, the detective... Uh, in that period, you start to see signs emerging that the detective um, is a much more complex character, um, and and uh, that you know n- not everything gets resolved um, neatly at the end of the day. And we, when we see that embodied in the detective. Yeah, we spoke recently with Sarah Bailey, whose detective Gemma Woodstock is particularly notorious for being a very, I, I guess, broken at her core character in some ways, which is an enormous contrast to the pure scientific detective of the golden age, as you mentioned there. Yeah, look, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we, you know, and, and, and that genre was reflected in television as well. So, mm. you know, by the time you get to the 70s, you know, you've got Columbo in a crumpled up raincoat, um, who, who isn't a very attractive figure. And you've got a range of other detectives that we've yeah. seen since, you know, who, who, who actually, you know, a lot of the, the, the social problems that, uh, I guess, criminology crime fighters were supposed to solve, we see we see these detectives actually having those sorts of problems, experiencing those problems, you know, whether it's represented in regards to alcoholism, and the use of drugs and so on. I mean, even Sherlock Holmes used drugs, but, uh, you know, in, in a very different way from what, what we see with, you know, contemporary detectives. Um, you yeah. know, they're, 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 they're closer to the, um, I guess, the stereotypes of street working, uh, sex workers um, from, from yesteryear. Um, in, 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 in the sense that, you know, they, they experience um, um, some social problems, you know, and they embody those uh, mm. in their day-to-day, everyday life. Even modern adaptations of Sherlock tend to lean on his drug problem a lot more as an actual vice of his character rather than just a adjective. Yeah, look, absolutely. So there was, uh, you know, we've, we've seen a spate of movies where that's become more prominent and people are more aware of that now. So, so the homes that we see, the modern homes, is a much more complex character than, say, the sort of, um, you know, and even in film, than the sort of Basil Rathbone sort of home, or yeah. homes of the you know, 40s and 50s, um, who, who was your stereotypical, you know, masculine, white um, Hollywood knight who would, um, you know, go out and um, fight and, and win battles and um, solve all the, all the problems of, of the world. Um, as they were, I mean, the, the, the homes of that period. I think there was one movie where even you know we were taking on that, you know, which was totally <laughs> out of sync with um, with the periodisation, the Victorian yeah. periodisation. 
But I mean, the idea was that he would actually fight evil. But there was always a little bit of a blurred line, I think, between Holmes and Moriarty. You know? yeah. so, so there was a sense that the, 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 the two characters were sort of almost one, there was a oneness to them. Yeah, and absolutely. Holmes even acknowledged that um, he wasn't that different from Moriarty in some way. Mm. Professor John Scott, thank you so much for joining us on Death of the Reader. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Okay, thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. So, yeah, thank you. I'm going to throw back to the future of myself. Uh, we're dealing with Sins for Father Knox by Josef Skoreski, and it's time to solve that puzzle. Tragedy is my catastrophe. Catastrophe. Tragedy. Oh. My man's gone from me. Gone from me. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. And <laughs> what Musical was edition. that? Mess herds. What do you mean mess? It's so well put together and the answers are just so straightforward. No, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. It is very well put together and for what the stories are doing, uh-huh. it is, uh-huh. you know, it makes a lot of sense. I don't think it's extraordinarily okay. complicated. I don't sure. think it's unfair. But? But it's like two different stories. Dude, the tonal whiplash from each story to each story is less than the tonal whiplash between the stories and their answers. They instantly are like, they're like gritty crime drama. People are getting shot and getting iced. And then they're like, oh boy, golly gee, we're going to solve the murder. We oh geez, it's- you sure are clever. <laughs> it's so good. And by good, I mean like kind of weird. <laughs> I think, Herds, I've been reading this wrong. Uh-huh. How? I think I was so put in the mindset of depressing melancholy detective by Lieutenant Borovka in sure. the first story, yeah, yeah. that I didn't just accept that this entire thing is a gag, much in the same way as Father Knox's rules. I mean, that's basically what we're dealing with here. Let's be real. The entirety of these first couple of stories, and we'll, we'll see if this continues, we'll see, we'll get to that. They're just a big goof. Yeah. Um, to the point that in order to make the secret passage work, which, by the way, you totally nailed. But thank you, whatever. thank you. Not that it was difficult, but I whatever, do believe Flex. I have scored myself one you point. You have scored yourself a point because you got everything smack bang right, correct. So good on you. But when we are, you know, uncovering the crime of the locked room murder, we stumble into one secret passage, find the countess and this dude just going at it. And that's like the big goof. And then she's like, have I gotten it wrong? Wait, no, what if there's a second secret passageway? Genius! Oh my god. Honestly, it's like a comedy skit. This entire thing is like a very slowly built up, meticulously planned out comedy skit. I don't know whether to blame Josef Skoreski for misleading me or whether to blame me for misleading (laughs) myself. Because one of those is true. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely a question of like expectations, as mm. many murder mysteries are. When you're coming into this and you're thinking, ah, I see, this is going to be a story about how, uh, you know, Yosef Skivarevsky is, is trying to like break down Knox's rules and like analyze them, which it, you know it deconstructs yeah, it to a yeah. certain degree. But it is very much a lighthearted romp in the in the same kind of tone that Ronald Knox's stories were. See the three taps as a yeah. prime example of that. No, absolutely. It's just like I think that it was kind of a mistake on his part opening with uh, Mm. an intimate business because that story reads so seriously. Like, obviously, the the female character, whose name I've forgotten and I don't actually know if we even get it. It doesn't matter. Look, let's be real. (laughs) She is obviously meant to be a bit of comedic relief in there where we have the contrast between her just being like, oh, screw that guy, screw this person, whatever Mm. about him, (laughs) Uh, my acting career. 
because it opens with Barovka, it sets the tone so differently to everything thus far. And going back to what I said in the first part of this episode, I still think that that story was a good choice for the first story because it breaks the first rule, introduces the themes, and we move on. Yeah, my assumption is, I haven't read the rest of the Barovka quadrilogy, yeah. as it were, but my assumption is that the tone of the first story with, with Barovka is very much in line with those of the stories. Yeah, yeah, And Absolutely. it's designed to, I mean, A, because he's only he's only in two of the ten stories. Mm. So putting him at the forefront and saying, hey, look, it's Lieutenant Barovka, remember him? Mm. Like, that's a like that's a marketing tactic, and it's also a good way, but yeah. it's also a good way on a less cynical side to, like, ease ease readers into the story. Yeah. You know, especially if they're not used to having a, like, like a lady detective um, or the kind of character that he's trying to portray with, with uh, Eve Adam, that sort of thing. I, I think he could have done a better job of showing how lighthearted the rest yeah. of the stories were going to be. And I don't sure. want to do him a disservice. Of I don't course. want to do Skvarsky a disservice because the introduction is lighthearted. Sure. It does jab fun at the things that Knox did. You know, the certain aging lieutenant, for example, it's it's mm-hmm. all very, you know, offhand snide remarks, yeah, which sure. sets the tone a lot better yeah. than the actual first story does. So I think as a package, it is adequately presented in that yeah. fact, but I've misled myself and I hope that I haven't mis- <laughs> misled you yeah. as we've been reading through this on the show and describing it so seriously. Yeah. Of course, we're only a third of the way through and we'll, we'll see how some of the other stories yeah. go. But um, I mean, there are some lines even in the in the first story that are, quite telling. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite lines is, under the influence of the erotic, nothing is impossible. Yeah. And I mean, that sums up all three stories so far, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I mean, hey, it's a fun novel and that's not what I thought it was until just now. <laughs> and I'm totally okay with that. Dude, I mean, this is why I picked it. All right. It's because even you who love your rules and your strictures and your chains can learn to live a little once in a while. <laughs> Flex. Come on now. All right, now let's get into the standard affair for this part of the show where we discuss, was this novel fair? Were these three stories fair? I mean... To a fault. Yeah, they basically give it away is the problem, right? Like, I mean, I I personally, when I read it the first time, I had trouble with the first story, but the other two were a piece of cake. Uh, And it's because uh, Yosef has this problem. (laughs) The pause. I'm not even going to say it. (laughs) Yosef has this problem where... Damn you. Yosef has this problem where he will uh, he, he will put this final clue in front of the reader just before the full stop happens. Yeah. And honestly, if you're looking for a challenge, you should stop. Like when you can, when you flip the page and you can see the stop sign on the opposite page, stop there. Yeah. Like don't keep reading that extra agree. page, right? Uh, because the clue that he gives you just before the um the the infertility you know diagnosis from the doctor the the characters literally saying like oh that creepy old man went down in the cellar for ten minutes suspiciously as the crime was happening like these these clues that are pop up just before the stop button and you realize oh well that's like that's the clue yeah. that I need to focus on that's the part out of it, it basically cuts out all of the like white noise all of the extra stuff that Yosef has been building up on for the entirety of the story and like they're not super long stories but still you got like 20 pages there and then with that final line of oh the infertility thing like maybe we should look and see where that could come into play and you can narrow that down to oh these are the two pages where we talk about kids and how people might be related i think that it does that for a reason. It does that to be fair. Because ultimately, by sure. breaking some of the standard rules of fair play, you need to do something to make up for it. And I think that's yeah. what he did to fill that gap. Yeah. And that said, like, 
in order to solve the mysteries of, you know, who did the killing and why and how and all that sort of thing, you, you kind of have to figure out which of the sins is being broken and, and vice versa. Yeah. Um, the solution of the director's wife doesn't make any sense if you haven't figured out that the director's wife, despite not being mentioned, is is the culprit, right? Mm. Like, you, you can't have one without the other. Um, and that is in a sense, kind of commendable. Like, I, I like that he decided to kind of tie yeah. it together. That's a very deliberate choice. And I think that each of those absolutions, each of the rules that it's broken, it does it in a very neat way. For example, it introduces you to the fact that the Doctor was infertile and had a child, thus there had to have been a wife even though she wasn't introduced. It's surprisingly straightforward logic, and I really like the way that it does it. It is kind of interesting looking through the absolutions and seeing Yosef kind of explain himself. Yeah. Particularly in the in the second absolution, in the mistaken Hitsongsi, as as we've heard described. <laughs> uh, he he <laughs> If I if you can't pronounce Kvresky, I can't pronounce that one. Perfect. Hitsongsi, done. Uh, he, I'm he still probably getting this completely <laughs> wrong. He, he mentions that the the clue to the motive of the the old caretaker is back in an intimate business, which is insane. Mm. I don't know if you picked up on that, but apparently that's a thing. Go go find that if you haven't spotted that. Um, and as a former convent, the, the closest hotel qualifies as a place where there might be a secret passage. I had missed that detail entirely. It's just it's just kind of funny seeing what parts of the story Yosef thinks you should you know mm. really pick up on. Um, and of course, but of course, two passages are going too far in this case. Um, but and, yeah. But well, if you have one secret passage and a secret passage is a wrong, two wrongs make a right. It's a fair story. Yeah, dude. That's how murder mystery works. You just gotta right. break an even number of rules and you get off <laughs> scot free. That's how I do it. Uh, all right. Fill well, an even number of people. You know, Herds, I've I, I've enjoyed this a lot more now that I've read the solutions than than, in, than I initially did. I think I'm a lot more excited to go into part two of this. Uh, next week than I was initially. Yeah, next week we'll be covering stories four to seven, uh, in- inclusive, obviously, and we'll be challenging Flex to solve them once more on next week. Yes, oh my goodness. I'm so excited. A question of alibis, that's already, that's just my favorite one already. Yeah, alibis are fun, dude. Alibis are fun. Except when they involve train puzzles. <laughs> oh dear. See you next week on Death of the Reader. <laughs>